For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Governor Stitt announced new restrictions to reduce the spread of COVID-19. Under a new order from Stitt, public gatherings will be capped at 50 percent, while sporting events at schools will be limited to only four spectators per participant. This comes on top of curfews for bars and restaurants. Ryan, what do you think of these new restrictions? Yeah, I think that they're good. They they don't obviously go far enough. Uh, we we still would, uh, I think, benefit greatly as a state if the governor and, and other statewide leadership would uh, enact a mask mandate and, and talk more and give more local political cover for uh, local political f- officials to be able to enforce masks in those smaller rural communities, because that's where we're really seeing an issue with with compliance is in rural Oklahoma. I can tell you that in, in my travels uh, back to my hometown in Seminole, there's a big difference between what you see <clears throat> in Seminole County versus what you see whenever I, I'm out and about in Oklahoma County. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very different situation, or Oklahoma City at least, because we have leadership in Oklahoma City that's enacted a mask mandate, and it, and it works. Um, but everything that we do in these next few months is just so critically important. We are really, I mean, we're on the verge of, of vaccines. We've seen the first vaccines roll out in Oklahoma this week. And it's just, we're, we're at this moment where everything that we've done to this point, uh, if, if, we've, if we've got ourselves and our loved ones to the point where we've survived to now, you know, we should do everything we can knowing that it's just around the corner. It was one thing to say back in June, whenever there wasn't an end in sight, but there's an end in sight now. And, you know, I think that as we come into this, this holiday season, um, you know, decisions, hard decisions that we're going to be uh, making about gatherings, you know, need to be informed by that, that we're, we're, we're close to an end here. And so let's, let's do our very best and, and hang out uh, uh, the, the most we can until, uh, until everybody's able to have that vaccine. Neva. Well, I think the governor, uh, the executive order that uh, detailed these new restrictions that will be in effect uh, at least for 30 days is the re- is the result of two things this week. One, the White House Coronavirus Task Force had recommended that Oklahoma implement stronger restrictions. So uh, one of the things specifically being uh, focused on was limiting restaurant capacity and also uh, closing or, res- or restricting bars. And the other thing that uh, I believe was in play was the fact that the governor had a meeting earlier this week uh, with uh, uh, with local law, uh, local doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals, uh, a, a group of those folks, and he described it as a no holes barred conversation, which uh, uh, sounds like it was a fairly uh, spirited uh, back and forth. And and he came out and basically said, look. Our doctors, our nurses, our medical folks, they're exhausted. I mean, they've been on the front lines since March. And so I think that um, I, I think those two things uh, kind of uh, directed a focus and attention in the governor's office. And as a result, we see these uh, uh, these things now in place in terms of the executive order. And I think it is, as Ryan said, it is important to uh, not uh, not not take the, the the kind of short term this is over or close to being over so we can kind of do what we want to do. And, and there's no implications uh, in terms of the, 
the health side and really uh, pay attention to the fact that we are dealing with uh, big, big numbers right now Mm -hmm. uh, statewide uh, and that uh, we have, I think uh, the state reported this week that there were only 3% of ICU beds available in the state. So it's still a serious situation. It's one that uh, folks, I think, are are trying to very deliberatively and consciously work through. Um, And as Ryan said, lots of lots of issues in terms of just the holidays and how people are going to respond based upon all of this information that is clearly out there and very important to know. Well, and there's there's a whole art to you know navigating these family gatherings at this point. I mean, I, I'm dealing with it in my family. I have a, a 93-year-old grandmother uh, that has fortunately not had COVID this entire time. Uh, and You've got family members that are insistent on having uh, as normal of a, a Christmas gathering as we normally have in Seminole. And you know what, what that does is, and then you know, those, those same folks that are insisting upon that also insist that you know, masks don't work and we shouldn't wear masks. And so we're, we're really at this moment where you know, as individuals, as political operators, we, we all need to be trying to make these decisions and influence people around us to get to the vaccine. And with the end is inside folks. Oklahoma's electors cast their votes for President Donald Trump, while the state's seven votes for the current president was a foregone conclusion. It wasn't enough to beat now President-elect Joe Biden. One issue of note was Governor Stitt's acknowledgement of Biden named as the next resident of the White House. Neva, your thoughts on Oklahoma's electoral vote earlier this this week? Well, I think, uh, as you say, Michael, it is a process. I mean, the uh, the procedure to come to the Capitol for the duly uh, named electors. Uh, each party, the Democrats, had their their named electors. If the state had uh, gone to the uh, the uh, column for the Democrats and Republicans uh, as well, so we had we had those folks, the seven and the seven electors and their seven alternates, all came. These are folks uh, historically in both parties are people that are elected within the framework of the par- of their respective parties. I mean, they are. Uh, typically, uh, longtime volunteers, operatives, activists, people that that uh, have been engaged a long time, and this uh, for many of them is a highlight of their uh, volunteer years of involvement in the political process. And I think, uh, as you say, it was it was uninvent- uneventful, but it is important. I mean, it is a part of the uh, not only symbolic but the the permanency in the historical side of being able to sign these documents uh, uh, that not only are uh, become part of the National Archives uh, with each presidential election, but then are um, uh, appropriately uh, dispersed to the president of the U.S. Senate, uh, district judges in the respective states, uh, as well as in the respective secretary of state's offices. So um, I think uh, I I think that uh, your point about uh, the governor answering the question during the ceremony uh, of whether he acknowledged that uh, uh, Joe Biden won the the presidential election and he said yes, I think uh, I think as we talked about last week, this part of the process where the electors cast their their votes. Now the next process will be when Congress takes that up in January and formalizes it is is part of how we have an orderly transition of governments and why it is important for people to understand every component of this process, not just their their part when they go to the polls and exercise their right to vote. Ryan. You know, I normally we, we don't pay a lot of attention to the operation, the actual operation 
of the very anti-democratic institution of the electoral college. You know, whenever they meet at state capitals to cast their ballots, it's it's usually, <clears throat> you know, the 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 outcome of the presidential election uh, is is not in question. You know, the the idea of who is going to be the next president is in question. It wasn't in question this time. Uh, either, except for the fact that a large number of Republicans, including Republican voters and Republican uh, elected officials, maybe even a larger percentage of Republican elected officials, up until the Electoral College met earlier this week, refused to publicly concede that Joe Biden won the presidential election. And, you know, they they held out false uh, hopes based on you know, uh, allegations of fraud that were without any foundation or merit, you know, dozens and dozens of ridiculous lawsuits that were laughed out of federal courts and state courts by Republican and democratically appointed judges, including some Trump appointees that laughed his own lawsuits out of those, those same courts. So, you know, the electoral college ballot uh, this year created an opportunity that we don't see with most electoral college meetings. And that was an opportunity for some Republican elected officials to uh, sometimes, you know, quietly with uh, Governor Stitt's case, you know, say, you know, yes, uh, that's all he had to say. But he said yes, uh, to concede that, you know, Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. And Donald Trump did, in fact, lose this election. <clears throat> so, you know, that's that's normally you don't see the Electoral College creating a political opportunity or some political cover for elected officials to be able to say that. Normally, people can just, you know, recognize reality for what it is. But <clears throat> in 2020, you've got to have some special meeting to be able to recognize reality. I don't think that that's what our framers meant when they created the Electoral College, but such is its purpose now. But to be fair, I mean, let, let's let us add to the point that the this this period where uh, there is the opportunity to challenge, uh, to go to court, to file lawsuits, to to do those things that uh, uh, give you an opportunity to make your case. The, the key is you have to make a case uh, to be able to move that through a process and have some, you know, positive resolution. If you're the one uh, filing the suits, it, it is it is part of the process, and it's a process that is good for Democrats and Republicans alike. After an election, at any at any juncture, if they believe that there is something uh, that needs to be uh, looked at from the judicial standpoint, so um, it, we've gone through the process. We're now looking at January twentieth, uh, the inauguration of a new president, a change of an administration. These things uh, again. The importance in my in my point of in my view is that there is an orderly transition of power, which has been at the core of our democracy since uh, since this nation was founded. Six candidates have officially filed to replace Congresswoman-elect Stephanie Bice. Two Republicans and two Democrats are vying for the state Senate 22 seat as two of the GOP candidates were removed by the state election board. Uh, primaries for the largely Republican district in central Oklahoma takes place on February 9th with the general election in April. Uh, let's start with these Republicans that were knocked out. Neva, uh, one of them was considered the front runner for this race. That's right. And I think, as we talked about uh, last week, uh, Rob Johnson and uh, Derek Matthews both uh, seem to early on be garnering a fairly significant amount of uh, support uh, as they file for office. But this is this was an interesting twist. I mean, it's uh, it's probably a, a reflective of 2020 and just elections in general that we have these bizarre twists. But you had the, the these two 
uh, Republican candidates uh, basically trying to challenge the other one off the, off of the ballot. What turned out to uh, be the case was both were knocked off the ballot. Um, I think the the interesting the interesting give and take typically in these kind of challenges is about uh, whether the person has been a registered voter and a resident in the district and and the uh, the, the the time frame is clear it has to be 6 months immediately preceding the first day of the filing period so we see these contests uh, oftentimes where someone goes determines that someone's not been in the right district hasn't lived there long enough changed parties uh, you know in the and and didn't do it within the proper uh, time frame whatever the circumstances so the the board heard evidence uh, in in both of these uh, in both of these cases, and made a determination to um, to knock both of these folks off the ballot. It will be interesting to see. There's certainly another. Uh, there there is certainly another avenue, and it very well may be that one or both of these uh, men may decide to uh, take their uh, uh, take their case to the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. state Supreme Court. And frankly, in the past, if we look uh, back at uh, what has occurred, uh, oftentimes the courts have been fairly. Uh, uh, have have actually turned out uh, uh, favorably for some of for some of the candidates in these types of challenges. So you know whether that occur whether a challenge takes place to the to the court or whether um, uh, we see any other resolution, it does change the whole dynamic because it leaves two Republicans uh, in. Uh, in the race, if both Rob Johnson and Derek Matthews are left off, then Jake Merrick and Kerry Shipley will be uh, the two vying for the Republican nomination against the the two Democrats uh, looking to gain their nomination. And Ryan, let's talk about those Democrats. What do you think about them? Well, the the Democratic primary is is you know kind of boring in comparison <laughs> to what's happened over on the Republican side. I mean, you've got you've got two, I think you know really solid mainstream middle one one of the candidates even even calls herself a normal oklahoman uh it's uh, it's you know that's that's what you have to in politics these days you have to make sure that people understand that you're normal uh because there's a a pre a pre misconception that if you're in politics that you're you're not normal uh but <laughs> but but uh molly Uten, a speech pathologist says that she is a normal oklahoman uh, she works for Sooner Start. She's bilingual. Uh, she's, you know, I think going to, you know, work a, a really hard campaign. Dylan Billingsley, who's an adjunct uh, poli sci professor, also, uh, you know, both folks have their websites up and, and you know, talk about a lot of the issues that have been important to Democratic candidates. And I think, you know, hopefully for them, important to normal Oklahomans. And they're going to be up against this this uh, and they're, they're kind of these two moderate figures within the Democratic Party vying for the nomination. And over on the Republican side, you have a real dichotomy. Uh, you've got uh, in in one candidate, uh, uh, Jake Merrick, you know, one of the you know far right uh, abolition uh, abortion abolition candidates. Um, you know, he's, he says things like we've got to reclaim masculinity and all that it means to be a man, <clears throat> and and uh, you know interesting gems like that. Uh, and then you have. Um, Shipley, who is, uh, you know, she's a, a current legislative staffer, you know, much more plugged into the capital networks, more institutional, more of a, you know, standard Republican conservative, typical of the kind of Republicans that we've largely seen being elected to the state legislature recently, frankly. And so it'll be interesting to see how that that dynamic shapes up over there. As somebody who's been through a residency challenge myself, when I was running for re-election in 2006, I had my residency challenged, and um, you know I, I was fortunate. You know, the the court, the election board, they use a totality of circumstances test, and I, I am just so glad 
that my opponent wasn't able to say that I was actually living in, in my old boss's she shed, uh, to, to get, <laughs> uh, to get, uh, residency. I mean, that was the, uh, it was one of the more bizarre residency, if not the most bizarre residency challenge on both sides, on both of those challenges, it was a mutually assured destruction, uh, strategy. And like you said, you know, the, the top two front runners, uh, knocked each other out of the race. And now you've got kind of a wide open primary over on the Republican side. Neva with the, uh, it- yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that does this does this kind of shake up the Republican uh, side of it a, a lot? Or usually, it's uh, whenever I see a challenge, it's almost always like an incumbent challenging one of their lower level people that really wouldn't be much of a challenge anyway. To see it be the top runner, does that really shake up that race? Well, I think it it, it certainly changes the the dynamic at least on on the front end from what people expected. And and Ryan is right. I mean, uh, the, here here you have this. Uh, you have this setup where everyone thought they knew kind of how this race was going to unfold, probably on both sides. And now it is something uh, vastly different. But even even looking at, let's presume that uh, that the Republicans wind up with just the two remaining on the ballot, Jake Merrick, Kerry Shipley. I mean, you're right. There is a contrast. And with Kerry Shipley, even though she is uh, connected and works uh, at the legislature and is involved. She also was uh, involved with Republicans for Drew Edmondson, which, as we know, in a Republican primary, if you uh, uh, if you cross the line uh, and been involved or supportive in a pro- in a reasonably high profile way, uh, someone in the opposite party, you're going to be taken to task by those folks that are, you know, that are staunchly staunchly Republican. Um, and that very well could be a factor. Um, and then, of course, uh, as you say, I mean, Jake Merrick ran a race uh, earlier this year in the uh, CD5 Republican primary, only three percent of the vote uh, uh, he garnered. But nevertheless, it will it will it will be a race that is probably much more a grassroots campaign on both sides than it would be high spending with uh, more of the um, more of the. Uh, uh, heavy mail and a lot of things that could have been done if someone had uh, the resources right on the front end. But the Democrats, I think, are, will be a fascinating race, too, because Dylan Billings, as I understand, Aaron Wilder uh, is the consultant in that race, someone who uh, was successful with uh, Mari Turner uh, coming to the legislature, has uh, been James Cooper's um, uh, consultant uh, who's on the Oklahoma City Council. So very, uh, you know, uh, very connected into the progressive uh, uh uh, uh, wing of the Democrat Party, and then you have uh, Skyfire, a well-respected political consulting firm, as I understand it, uh, that'll be working with uh, Molly Uten. So that they that uh, that sets up, I think, on both sides for very interesting, very interesting primaries, and even more interesting the the uh, special general election, which will take place mm-hmm. in April. And he was, you know, we we shouldn't count, especially Rob Johnson out right now. His his attorney over uh, in this in this whole deal is Robert McCampbell, a respected appellate attorney. And I, it wouldn't surprise me in the least if 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 both, but especially if Johnson doesn't appeal the election board's uh, ruling here to the state supreme court, and you know possibly make new some new case law if they do. The idea of residency could be greatly expanded in Oklahoma. Mm. I agree completely. And I think Robert McCampbell is uh, certainly very expert in in these types of uh, uh, challenges. So, uh, in fact, many were surprised yesterday or earlier this week uh, when 
when the uh, when the ruling came out the way that it did, that there was a feeling that, uh, uh, in fact, one or both of these folks, uh, you know, could could well sustain could sustain the challenge. So it it will be fascinating to see and and how quickly if this uh, takes place, uh, what how quickly it happens and what the resolution is because they're on a very short time right. frame. Once we get past these holidays, I mean there there's not a day to waste before the the primary election. So uh, it's going to just accelerate the uh, the the real intensity. I think in January on what this race is going to look like on both sides. Legislation going before lawmakers in the coming session, making it harder to pass initiative petitions at the ballot box. Uh, Broken Arrow Republican Senator John Haste has filed a bill requiring initiative and referendum petitions to get 60 percent approval from voters to pass. And this would have killed recent high profile ballot measures, including medical marijuana and Medicaid expansion. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this? I think that this is an attack on one of the most important fundamental rights that the Oklahoma Constitution reserves to its people. Uh, the ability of, of us as individuals to amend our constitution, to make laws, to say that the legislature messed up. Uh, you know, it gives, it's, it's something that's unique to the Oklahoma Constitution. It's, it's not in every state's constitution. And it is the first right in our constitution. Our, our framers in Oklahoma recognized that the people needed to have this position of uh, to, to hold their elected officials accountable and sometimes to move their elected officials. When you think about even, even state questions that have failed, they have generated a lot of conversation. They have moved legislative priorities uh, or changed legislative priorities, even by just being discussed. Uh, and, you know, I, I think of, um, you know, the, the ability of state questions also to bring Oklahomans together across deep, otherwise deep political divisions. And if you look at the, the coalition of folks that passed medical marijuana, state question 788 in Oklahoma, probably one of the most diverse political coalitions that ever existed. And I mean, and I mean that from a partisan standpoint, especially uh, because you have, you have folks, I, I, I have worked with 788 folks uh, that are diehard Trump supporters. I have worked with folks that are libertarians and folks that are liberal Democrats. This is this is something that brings Oklahomans together. The state chamber has been pushing this, whether this is the resolution or the measure that actually uh, ends up being the, the real vehicle for initiative petition reform. The state chamber has been pushing this. It's a priority of theirs. And I'll say for the sole reason that it's easier for them to continue to operate at the state capitol with their lobbyists than it is for them to go out and defeat these measures at the ballot box. This is about them protecting their power, and they're going to try to do it by saying that they're actually protecting rural Oklahomans, but that's a ruse. Neva? Well, it will be it will be interesting to see how the legislature reacts to this and, and whether this uh, moves through the process and ultimately they refer the measure to the ballot uh, for a statewide vote. But it is, it is uh, I think, the the case that is being advanced by uh, Senator John Haste, uh, who has uh, filed this legislation, is that his contention is that if it takes 60 percent uh, to pass a school bond, then it should take a similar amount to get something in our Constitution. That's been one of the comments that he's he's made uh, time and again in trying to uh, at trying to ramp up support for uh, you know for his cause on this legislation but you can make you can look at in terms of uh, what has happened in the then the initiative petitions and the ones that have gone to the ballot you're right i mean we we did see uh, medicaid expansion legalized medical marijuana 
uh, criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of those uh, getting uh, less than the 60% threshold, if, if that had been in place. And yet we saw the uh, modernization of uh, uh, the alcohol laws passed with 65%. We saw the uh, question when it came up on the state's use of the death penalty and, and changing execution methods, that was 66% uh, support. So, so I mean, we've, see, we've seen uh, arguments to be made on both sides in terms of this threshold question of, of the 60%. I think uh, to, to Ryan's point, it is a philosophical question as well on where, where do we come down in terms of the uh, people having uh, having the opportunity to place things on the ballot, the legislature place things on the, the ballot. And I think the sticking point in the minds of many, at least the ones I've talked to, is this whole issue of when it becomes a something placed in the Constitution and the fact that then you have to go back to the people if you want to amend, change, or remove something like that. That's, again, a very difficult process to be successful at. And when you start down this road, I mean, citizens at any point, if they want to go the petition route, I mean, they have 90 days to get uh, quali you know, qualified signatures. Uh, the range is somewhere to, let's say, 60,000 to almost 178 to 180,000 uh, signatures. That is such a such a monumental uh, undertaking for any group, mm -hmm. any organization, that there's going to be, I think, a lot of give and take in the conversation with the legislature when they come back in in February on this point. And, and we'll just have to watch it and see, uh, see how it evolves and whether or not uh, this bill in particular gets traction. Just to lift up real quick, one thing that Neva said that I think is really important is that there's a misconception that if you just want to put something on the ballot, you go put it on the ballot. I, I read somewhere that somebody said, you just go to the state fair for a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to I want to just, I'll use a term that my late friend and mentor, Opioturi, Representative Opioturi would say, willy-nilly. You, you don't just go put something on the ballot willy-nilly. It is incredible. As somebody who's done this uh, for multiple ballot questions uh, with different organizations, it is incredibly difficult to get to the ballot. Uh, there are so many hurdles and it's so expensive. Uh, you know, there are, there is a check in place already. And that check uh, are the very narrow requirements that you have to meet to be able to get on the ballot to begin with. Well, and it's, this is going to be the last this week in Oklahoma politics for the year. So I just, do you guys uh, want to wish our listeners a uh, Merry Christmas, a happy holidays out there? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, I, I, I want to say how indebted I think we all feel to all of those that have been on the front lines of service for the past 40 weeks. I mean, 40 weeks since uh, uh, the week um, in the middle of March when uh, COVID really hit our state the, the way it did. The medical personnel, the first responders, I mean, the list of all of those folks, essential personnel who have really gone above and beyond and worn themselves out uh, in doing uh, doing the, uh, the the jobs and the service that they've been called to do. And I think at this time of the year, it's also important for us to remember the members of our armed, armed forces who are serving around the world to uh, uh, serve and protect others, as well as Oklahomans. I think we should give ourselves a shout out for just the uh, spirit of giving, uh, the random acts and organized acts of kindness that we see every day around us taking place uh, in, in very difficult times because many folks, uh, this is a season when they're uh, 
Uh, they're looking to others to share their grief and concern for the for the losses that they've experienced uh, in 2020 as well. So I, I wish uh, uh, both of both Michael and Ryan, their families, and uh, all of our listeners at KOSU, a very Merry Christmas and uh, a very bright and and much uh, a much better uh, 2021. Ryan. Thanks, Michael and, and Neva, and you know, Merry Christmas to, to both of you. You're you're both you know dear friends, and I, I'll tell you, it's been such a strange year. For, you know, I'll, I echo everything that Neva said. I'm gonna I'm just copy paste everything that Neva said. <laughs> uh, but it's been such a strange year, and we've taped most of this year's this week in Oklahoma politics um, from our homes. And mm-hmm. you know, Michael there at the studio. We've done this over Zoom. I've missed seeing everybody in person, and uh, it's been such a uh, an important thing for me each week to be able to, or at least most weeks, to be able to come together with with two very good friends uh, to talk about important things in the state of Oklahoma. And so I want to say thanks to both of them and, and thanks to our, our listeners uh, for giving us their time and their attention, whether you're, you're listening on the podcast or in your car. Um, thank you so much for listening. And, and it's a real privilege to be able to have this opportunity to, to think about things out loud, uh, sometimes, sometimes in a smart way. And sometimes things I think, boy, I don't, I don't agree with myself, even, <laughs> even listening you know, 24 hours later, but it's such a privilege. And so, you know, from, from my family to, to Michael and Neva, the KOSU family and, and all of our listeners, a very Merry Christmas and, and happy holidays. And I've got, I've got a, a special guest with me. Yes, today. we have a special daughter, guest here. My, my five-year-old daughter, Claire, is with me. She was with me for the last time that we taped in the studio. So she's here with me in, at home now, and she's got a message for everyone too. Go ahead, Claire. Um, Merry Christmas. Merry Very Christmas good. from Claire and from the whole Kiesel family. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Neva and Ryan and Claire's comments do not necessarily <laughs> reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.